Yes, well, uh, there is not not much way around it um, except of uh, doing a double check. So we have to train for uh, first of all um, finding the egg. <laughs> so we do a double check in a certain number of cases. Um, for instance, uh, first we we start just uh, the, the the technician or the embryologist starts getting used. Uh, to, to the procedure, and once we feel that uh, the person is comfortable, uh, we we put her with a, a patient. Uh, so first, she trains with the, what is left over from the most experienced embryologist, just to ha- get hand of the the material, uh, the contact with the the um, the procedure, uh, and then uh, we switch it, and the training uh, starts uh, observing the. Uh, the follicle fluid, and then the most expert uh, embryologist aside of uh, of this person and do a double check. And we considered here, uh, each laboratory has its own standards. We considered here that the person has to have made uh, 20 egg collections without losing one oocyte to be uh, habilitated uh, in the procedure. Uh, What is important uh, in our point of view of an embryologist, is to go fast. Uh, we have learned from animal models and uh, from the experience in the embryology lab that uh, uh, we have to avoid uh, osmolarity check, um, uh, osmolarity shock, and also uh, in order to uh, keep the oocytes as fast as possible back to their 37 uh, degrees uh, in, a, in, a, in the incubator, the procedure has to go fast. So rapidity counts. And, uh, of course, the expertise of not, not uh, losing an, an oocyte. So it's quite simple, actually. In my view, there is not much uh, more to, to be done about that. And, of course, if the person can handle it without uh, contaminating uh, the pipette and so on. So, But until uh, we check all that before she sits uh, or he sits with a patient, of course. So uh, from there on, it's rapidity and not losing an oocyte. Uh, exactly. Uh, just a quick um, addition to that. What um, what PPE would you suggest people use when when doing egg collections? Well, uh, we do use um, uh, laminal flow that is vertical with uh, protections at the at the level of the eyes because we can always have uh, uh, follicle fluid projections with containing blood or even just the, uh, the, the material, any material that can be projected. So to protect your eyes uh, via this laminal flow that has this uh, protection at the level of your, your, your eyes. Uh, gloves, of course, because it's a biological material. And masks to avoid then that you project uh, 
from your yourself to the to the culture uh, dishes um and so it's basically that protecting your eyes gloves and masks uh, to my view there is not much neither around uh, around all that it depends also of the um, uh, class that you work in your laboratory if it's class uh, five six or seven you are dressed accordingly of course no? uh, to the laboratory vestments sure and and just to go back a little bit uh, ariana you, you mentioned briefly about training uh, your clinical colleagues in egg collection. Any uh, specific advice there about the the best practice to to train um, to get the best results from egg collection? Yeah, so we did look at this topic um, on two of our extra papers. Actually, one is the good clinical practice uh, recommendation in, in the oversized pickup, and the second paper is the key performance clinical key performance indicators is the Maribor consent consensus. So both both papers um, are very interesting. They are open access, and I would recommend to read them for um, getting more information about training competence. But basically, we concluded that obviously. Any, any any doctor trained in reproductive medicine must be competent in performing uh, oocytes pickup. Um, currently, there is no training requirement um, or minimal training requirement, so we had to work it out according to the literature and according to the expert consensus. Um, we uh, agreed as a group, and, um, and Asher is fully supportive of that, that um, the simulator could be an initial an initial uh, phase, so initial structure uh, training for novices. So the, there, are, uh, you, there are simulators nowadays available, and you could use those simulators the same way, you know, trainees would, would use simulators for minimal access, laparoscopy, stereoscopy, or any other, um, you know, training they do in different specialities. So these simulators for egg collection and embryo transfers are available, and I would highly recommend using that to start with. That will allow the trainees to feel comfortable and confident without having the, the fear of having the real patients in front of them. And, and also the, the, the trainer um, could, could, you know, could spend more time to supervise and teach uh, the, the methodology. Um, then, obviously, uh, there will be the practical part, you know, the clinical part, uh, where the, the trainee needs to be supervised. Um, and we would say that a trainee is competent if we at least, uh, if they at least collect um, 80% or more than 80% of the eggs um, comparing to a senior clinician. Um, we said in, the, in, the, in, in both papers that we have for at least uh, 30 procedures done super, under supervision and 50 procedures done independently. Uh, we have to have a look, obviously, at the ratio of the number of eggs retrieved compared to the number of follicles aspirated. And as I said, that should be at least 80%. Um, and then, obviously, any complications in terms of uh, short or long-term complications from the procedure needs to be audited. Um, for maintaining skills, uh, we would say that the minimum is 50 a collection a year. And uh, obviously, if, if you are proficient, so an expert, then you should have done at least uh, 200, 250 procedures um, to be considered, you know, a, an expert. So these are just to give some numbers. But numbers are not that important. I think it's also uh, your, your feeling. I mean, you know your trainees and you know when the trainee is, re is ready or if a trainee might need some extra support and extra, uh, you know, help. And um, 
and there's nothing wrong with it as long as you know you have been comfortable that you are actually you know um, allowing them to to do procedure in a safe in the safest way so that would be the the final recommendation excellent um <clears throat> there was one uh, question that that comes up about um uh smaller uh ovaries so mobile ovaries as well and and techniques to um make that um egg collection as easy as possible uh so again with with trainees i suspect uh, they they wouldn't uh, like to train with a patient who had very poor stimulation but um do you have any advice for um those uh, patients who have relatively low levels of uh, follicle recruitment and the ovary is mobile yeah so the the these are difficult patients usually so we, yeah definitely as you said we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't ask a trainee to start uh, with those kind of patients you want them to start with a hyper stimulated ovary really ideally um but um but uh, if the patient if the ovaries are mobile then uh, what is very useful is to have an assistant uh, who is actually um, you know uh, experience ideally and this assistant can help you uh, by manually basically so the assistant can apply gentle pressure on the patient's belly on the patient's abdomen um, roughly uh, in a position that you you know you as an operator can suggest um, so that she can keep the ovary in place while you you from down below you are trying to access the ovary the access to the ovary is the most dangerous part when the ovary is mobile because obviously you might miss it and, 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 the, and the needle could be accidentally going into a bowel loop or the bladder or blood vessels. So very important that uh, if the ovary is not perfectly in view and perfectly stable, you know, in, in, the, in the right position, then you really shouldn't attempt the, the, the puncture. Um, and sometimes that's too dangerous to do. Um, but but, um, but overall, um, in my experience, if you if you have a good abdominal pressure, the ovaries tend to come down. The other thing which might help is also having a good chair, a good chair that can move, um, so that you can adjust the position of the of the of the patient and uh, help uh, you know get the help of gravity sometimes by you know uh, putting the bottom of the bed down. The the ovary might come down. Of course, some ovaries are uh, fixed and they are stuck to the top of the uterus or to the back of the uterus. Uh, in that case, there is a possibility to do, to do transmyometrial or transuterine egg collection. Again, they are very rare occasions and they should be done only in the hand of um, expert surgeons because those can be quite painful and they can also increase the risk of bleeding and um, and, and infection sometimes after the transmyometrial egg collection you might not be able to do the transfer because uh, the needle has gone inadvertently through the endometrial cavity. Um, so, you know, it can be done, but sometimes the, the embryo transfer can, you know, needs to be delayed then. Um, these are rare cases that usually, um, you know, are, are there only if there is uh, like one or two follicles and, and you have, nothing else to do and, and in that case you, you can try but uh, they are risky and obviously the patients needs to be counseled and consented in advance 
Yes, thankfully rare, but those insights uh, I think will be uh, will be uh, very helpful. Uh, Danielle, if I could um, turn to you, one of the uh, questions we're often asked in the in the embryology lab is um, is regarding the actual um, handling of the eggs once uh, you've uh, got the uh, follicular fluids in in the tubes. So, um, <clears throat> what do you um, assess as the the optimal way of of handling the eggs? What media to use? Uh, about washing the eggs, um, do you consider uh, trimming the uh, cumulus cell mass at all? Uh, just helpful um, observations from your experience about the the optimal way to to handle the uh, the, the cumulocytic complexes um, and what media, how long you should maintain them uh, before putting them back in the incubator, etc. Uh, starting from the whole sequence. So I, I completely agree with Ari, first of all, to um, uh, go fast in the retrieval and uh, filling your tube. So multiple follicles in the same tube, of course, it's uh, it's useful if the clinicians, it's what usually they do, they they put the, they pull the larger follicles in one tube because those are the ones that are, are less bloody. And of course, it's, uh, it would be very nice to avoid uh, blood retrieval because uh, it, it makes it more difficult to find the oocytes. So they try to do that for us. I think a tube of 10 ml, uh, in fact, it would be the best because first of all, it keeps better the temperature and also the osmolarity. Um, we tend to do uh, to read one tube per time. So we pull, uh, we place one uh, tube um, of containing 10 ml uh, follicle fluid in it. So it's a tube of 14 or 15 ml. And we read tube per tube. Uh, we do not uh, uh, place all the tubes in once in all the petri dishes because this would cause an osmolarity change and osmolarity changes can be very fast. So I advise to read tube per tube. Um, we use a 60 uh, millimeter dish uh, because in this way, again, uh, the volume is uh, larger in the dish and you avoid osmolarity, osmolarity uh, shock. Then um, the question of where to place the oocytes, uh, there are two ways or you uh, place them in a, a bicarbonate containing media, uh, but in this way you are gonna be obliged to use uh, gas incubators, mini gas incubators, because it's very important to keep the oocytes in a good pH, um, or you use heaps or uh, mops-based media. In this way, you uh, also economize uh, <laughs> financially. It's much more interesting uh, because we avoid using a gas mix uh, mini incubator. So in this way, you just have to have incubators that keep your row sites at 37 degrees. We actually did a comparison in our lab uh, for the reasons that Ariana mentioned previously, for economical reasons, and we did not find a difference using GMOPS media and bicarbonate-based media. So we opted by the GMOPS-based media. In this way, we avoided to have the, um, the introduction of the gas mix, which is uh, which has a, a financial uh, uh, charge to the laboratory. And uh, we cut down uh, this, uh, this introduction of this gas for the mini incubator. So we keep the oocytes at 37 degrees. Uh, that being said, it's extremely important to have your oil 
overlay in the dishes. So the oil, uh, if you, of course you opt, uh, you have to opt for an oil that uh, it's certified, uh, uh, tested with tests are which are MEA with MEA assay. Um, uh, so they are uh, they are surely gonna just have a positive effect because they are gonna again avoid osmolarity uh, uh, chains in your media. So I advise everybody uh, to avoid absolutely to use use a wash dish that do not contain an oil overlayer. Um, we do um, have to keep in mind that you have to have uh, uh, enough amount of media to place your oocyte. So I advise to have one ml uh, per uh, ovary in the first wash and perform two steps of wash to remove uh, blood uh, uh, blood around those uh, cumulus cells uh, before placing them in the actual culture media. Concerning the stripping of the cumulus cells, well, I have been in laboratories who do so. I've never really understood why you have to remove, uh, uh, partially remove your cumulus cells from the oocyte. I know there are some uh, some hypotheses, which I, I'm not sure they have been ever tested, uh, that can cause a, a detrimental effect to the oocyte. I do, uh, we do remove the blood. So if we have a clot blood attached to your cumulus cells, we go with syringes and we remove them to avoid the free radicals in culture. That we do. But to perform uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the removal, partial removal of the, the, the external cumulus cells, I, I thought this it's contraproductive and quite perhaps uh, detrimental because you what you might hypothetically gain biologically you lose because of your waste of time exposure of all sites in the uh, atmospheric air etc etc so no I do not believe that this can bring any uh, positive effect might be I change my mind if I see some evidence on it I think we should work fast we should wash well the oocytes and try to maintain everything as much as possible at 37 degrees in the dish and with uh, um, osmolarity uh, without any avoiding osmolarity chains. That's the secret for me of a good uh, egg retrieval at the laboratory site. Excellent. Um, do you think there's any um, benefit <clears throat> to doing any grading of the cumulus suicide complexes? Or it's counterproductive, as you say, in time? Well, you know, we did do that a lot uh, years, years ago. Uh, in my laboratory, we stopped doing it because, well, we know that uh, some percentage of uh, the oocytes um, do not correspond. Uh, there is a, a non-correspondence of uh, the maturity rate with the cumulus cells. So you're going to have some uh, cumulus cells that are expanded with an immature oocyte in it, and vice versa. Um, we, 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 we. I do. I do not think that it brought uh, a lot of benefit to to our uh, routine and to to the selection of oocytes um, for the transfer. Because that's the aim: huh? is to try to classify your oocyte from the beginning to the end to choose the best embryo for transfer. Uh, we know nowadays that even the Morphology of the oocyte itself—it's uh, kind of uh, uh, not so. Uh, the, the usefulness of this is not so clear uh, unless you have a really um, abrupt uh, and very clear abnormal change. Uh, so uh, I think we should not lose. I think it's again 
could might be counterproductive. Now, uh, with IVM, uh, the things change. So if you do a retrieval of IVM in your laboratory, that's important because um, uh, it will help you, in fact, to determine uh, if the oocyte is mature or immature because you know uh, that for IVM egg retrievals, sometimes use protocols which give to the patient uh, agonist or HCG. So uh, about 15 to 20% of the eggs might be mature. And this is very important to know. Um, and it's still... Sometimes you have cumulus cells, uh, oocytes that cumulus cells that are partially uh, compact and they are mature. So it's a bit tricky, but in this case it's helpful because there you are gonna be able to find out if your oocyte is uh, mature. Uh, so you kind of um, uh, um, split them a little bit and you um, you evaluate your cumulus cells and you split them afterwards to see if the eggs are mature or immature to see if you are going to have to perform the eggs in the day itself or vitrification or the day after. So in IVM cases, it is useful. Also, because we don't know that much about IVM, so this data can be useful uh, uh, maybe clinically later on. But for IVF cases, I... I I do not, I'm not strongly advising to do so, but it's my opinion, huh? uh, uh, because the, 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 the papers out there, we know that you have a good cor correlation, but is it really useful at the end of the day to choose your embryo to transfer? I'm not sure. Uh, I agree, and I think uh, that's, that's very useful, um, very useful advice. <clears throat> while, we're, um, while we're talking about the, the embryology uh, aspects, uh, a question that does come up quite a lot is timing uh, after egg collection for denudation for ICSI. Uh, could I ask your um, uh, view on, on the timing um, post egg collection for, for stripping the, the eggs? Yeah, well, that's an extremely good question, of course, and uh, a difficult one to answer. What we know, there, are, there has been so many uh, papers out there about it, um, and the data is very contradictory. What we know for sure is that if, uh, if I'm not mistaken, there are about 20 papers about that so timing of uh, immediately denudation, uh, one hour to two hours, three to four, etc., etc. First of all, what is surely important is the time of today uh, 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 CG. In fact, we know today that we should not pass the insemination of the oocytes over 40.5 or 41 hours because of oocyte aging. So that we should consider it. Uh, the maximum time that you're going to do your ICSI or your insemination should be uh, ideally between 37 and uh, 39 hours from what the papers uh, have been published. That's one thing. For the incubation time, what we also know uh, that never came out a difference in live birth or implantation rate. Whatever you leave uh, up to, I'm sorry, uh, up to four hours. Uh, of course, we start knowing that if you leave your eggs uh, in culture before from egg retrieval to denudation uh, about uh, more than four hours, then you start seeing the detrimental effect because of the oocyte aging, because it's related to the time of HCG. Um, now, from zero to four, it's really contradictory. Some papers, they say that you improve fertilization, others say that you decrease fertilization rate. 
and so on. So <laughs> um, uh, I really cannot answer that question. In fact, uh, I, I know also that there is a research made in Brussels with IVF patients where they compared uh, inseminating immediately the oocytes or two hours after, and they did not see any difference. Um, I think no nowadays we do have to try to do our best with the logistics of the laboratory. Um, and I think you should certainly not pass more than three to four hours incubation because of the HCG. And I cannot answer yet uh, because there is not really a clear evidence in the literature, in my opinion, if it's better one, two or three or immediately denudation. I'm sorry. Oh, no. No, I think uh, that's actually reassuring because the uh, the people are um, are very concerned to, to get it right. And while there's uh, some controversy, there's some flexibility, I suspect, and we'll, we'll learn more um, over time. So one of the issues that you've brought up, and I think both of you have, have mentioned it, is temperature control. So um, I wonder, Ariana, if there's anything uh, from the practical um, aspects in the uh, operating room or the theatre uh, that you can do to try to um, maintain as close to 37 degrees as, as you can throughout the procedure and from the tubes going into the lab, etc. I just wonder what your opinions were there or your thoughts. Yeah, um, temperature is really important. So we we have developed also a section on on the on the extra paper uh, looking at equipment, consumable, how the your theater should be structured. Um, we 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 all all work in semi darkness. The temperature should be between 20 and 23 24 degrees um we 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 like to have a heating block and test tube warmer at least at 37 degrees and the culture media for the flushing or generally the culture media should be at 37 degrees so it's very important that you're um you are fast as uh, Daniel also mentioned in doing the procedure uh, so that uh, the, 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 the follicular fluid um, is aspirated and goes straight into the tubes and the tube is already in the heating block and then uh, um, the, the lab should be really very very close to the to the theater um, and, and and then the tube can can, can move from one block to another block or sometimes they are so disclosed that is the same block. Um, so that would be to you know recommend it to reduce the, the loss of heat. Um, again, it depends on the setup of your theater. Obviously, for example, in, in our theater, we, we need a long length of, uh, of tubing uh, connecting the needles to the, to the actual pump and to the, uh, to the tube. And, and that can cause a little bit of loss of temperature uh, using, using you know, those long uh, tubings. Um, but if you're, um, you know, if you're, for example, using a, a table which is very close to the patients or on top of the patients, so that there is no much uh, length, then uh, much distance between the, the needle and the, 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 the tube, then um, and that that probably is, is even better. So yeah, to to make sure that basically you you are aware of the issue about the temperature because uh, the, the the change in temperature generally for egg collection, but also for embryo transfer. For, um, is very important. Of course. And anything to add, Daniela, from your point of view and on temperature control? Yeah, well, 
What we have to keep in mind is that um, when we check uh, the optimal temperature for your cells, you have to check the temperature in the dish actually, not just on the on the heating plate. Uh, so, because there is a he- uh, some heating that is lost, mainly when the dish is open. Uh, so we have to be sure that when we put your heating plates, for instance, here, I know I have to put my heating plate at 38.5 to obtain a 37 degrees in my dish for the collection. So I think that's important to, to keep in mind. As, as I said, uh, uh, having a mini incubator um, uh, next to you that keeps... Uh, the dish while the collection is being performed in uh, at 37 degrees is very very uh, uh, useful and uh, keeps uh, a more optimal temperature throughout all the stages and the oil overlayer. I insist on that. <laughs> no, a very good point. I think it's um, it's it's vital that through any any embryology procedure that uh, the embryologists know exact temperature of the media and where the embryos are coming into contact and not the heated surfaces and to do it for all different dish types that that they use because they will all be slightly different in the temperature transmission from the heated surface into the the dish it's, uh, itself so that's uh, that's really uh, really useful um information um ariana i think we're we're getting close to have covered most of the topics is there anything from the uh, best practice paper that you uh, recently published with your colleagues that you would um, think we should share with the with the wider audience. Mm, yeah, I, I think one thing perhaps that we didn't uh, we didn't talk about and is very important is the the, the witnessing of the patient um, and um, how to um, to to kind of you know facilitate um, that um, and 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 also the the. the Make the patients comfortable once she's in, in in a theater facility, you know, surrounded by lots of people. She feels quite vulnerable. She's there, you know, anxious, and 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 she's awake. So that's the main difference between our procedure and the, and the general, you know, GI general anesthetic procedure. Patients usually go to theater while she's already anesthetized, whereas in, in our procedure, the patient is fully awake and she's sitting in a theater set up uh, surrounded by lots of people. So in, in, in our experience, it's really important um, that the patient feels comfortable. So she she shouldn't be really exposed or put in any um, gynecological position until she's, um, you know, fully relaxed. Um, and she should be covered as well. Um, we normally do the, the, the verbal witnessing um, in theatre. Uh, the patient is uh, sitting on the bed, uh, fully covered, and we introduce ourselves, and then we ask the patient to introduce herself and her details of the partner. And we are basically following the timeout steps of the World Health Organization checklist, uh, which we should all follow in Europe, really. Um, so, so we introduce ourselves, we, we witness that we have the right person in, in front of us. We also ask and make records if there is any anesthetic problem or allergy or any concern. Um, then we move to the electronic witnessing. So it's very um, 
it's good practice really to have the double witnessing. The verbal witnessing following by the electronic witnessing. There are different software and different uh, you know companies dealing with the with the with the witnessing. I'm not going to obviously to to discuss uh, any of them, but uh, uh, the, the the value and the importance of the electronic witnessing is out of doubt. Um, it's an extra step to safeguard your embryos, your 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 eggs, uh, your material in the lab, and to guarantee quality uh, and safety in your uh, service. So um, usually is the doctor moves in the lab with the embryologist or uh, the nurse with the embryologist, but usually it's done again a double witness and, and we make sure that uh, um, the patients we have in front of us actually matches the, the details of the culture dishes and, um, and, the, and, and, and the tubing and all the material that the embryologist has, has already pre prepared for the patient. Uh, once this uh, second step of witnessing is done, then uh, the procedure can take place. So in the meantime, the anesthetist has probably, um, you know, already started with with the anesthetic. Um, so. The, the, yeah, so that, that was one topic, and obviously the anesthetic topic is also covered in, in our paper, and uh, and we say that, again, there is no recommendation on which kind of anesthetic is better, but um, we, um, we we are actually looked at um, a recommendation from the British Fertility Society, um, and also from the Royal College of Anesthetists, um, and it seems to be that uh, the egg collection seems to be quite safe, um, done under conscious sedation um, and, uh, and, and there is a nice table on the paper where we describe the differences between uh, you know a deep sedation conscious sedation and general anesthetic with a conscious sedation in particular the patients must be awake well, or, or, or responsive, more than awake, you know, most of the time they sleep, but they have to be responsive, they have to be, uh, they can be deeply sedated or, or, or you know, um, the airway has to be open and they have to be able to breathe um, unaided. Uh, oxygen obviously can be given, but uh, they, they, the, the idea of the conscious sedation is that they are still, um, all the cardiovascular system and the respiratory system is uh, independent, basically. Um, so, uh, so again, so that, that those aspects are all covered in, in, in our paper. So it would be a good read for, uh, for all of you. And finally, uh, what I think is quite important from this paper that we published a couple of years ago now is that we did create some uh, boxes, um, like some little troubleshooting boxes where you might have some scenarios uh, that can occur in your uh, clinical setup or in your theatre setup and, and you might you know, it might, it might be better to read them because these things, when they happen, are pretty, you know, um, unsettling. And so we have covered different scenarios. For example, one of them is what happens if after aspirating one over you don't find any eggs and you've got another ovary to aspirate. What do you do? So I'm not giving you the answers. I just uh, ask you to go and read our paper to find the answers. But uh, yeah, they, they, these are, uh, I think, uh, very useful practical uh, tips. Thank you to everyone who's tuned in to this episode of Fertility Insights. Please like, share and comment and make sure to tune in to our next episode. Please note that the speaker received a fee from Cooper Surgical for participating in this podcast. <laughs>